Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, week one is sort of in the books. We're recording this before LSU Florida State. We are both in Orlando, but we're like 40 minutes apart right now. So I say that kind of loosely. We are mm-hmm. not in person, but we will be in person very, very soon. And I'm 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 excited. It, it, despite the fact that I that I have a little bit of the post week one blues, I love having this Sunday night game, which Brian Kelly should just be playing. Um, in perpetuity, but yeah, week one, man, how was, uh, how was your Saturday? Yeah, it was awesome, man. Um, I think it's cool that LSU is like, like you said, on just main event two ranked teams. I think the slate was a little bit lacking, but I think that the overall results were a little bit more surprising than, you know, we, we would have expected Texas state beating the mess out of Baylor was crazy. And then obviously we'll get to some of the Finley, What up? Yeah. <laughs> who, who would have slandered TJ Finley? Not me. No, but I mean, Hey, he finally had the game that, Several SEC coaches expected from him, but it was against a Big 12 team. Hey, good for him. Love to see the kids succeed. But yeah, I think um, the slate wasn't great, but I think the outcomes were. But it was just a nice little like lead up to Sunday, you know? It was. And, uh, you know, there were, it, it felt really lopsided in, in a lot of these top 25 matchups. We're going to get to the Dion stuff. Don't worry. But kind of crazy to think that through Saturday, and I tweeted this out, the only team in the AP top 25 who didn't win by double digits was TCU who lost mm-hmm. that game to Colorado at home, um, which was just absolutely wild. But yeah, we have full week one reactions. Uh, shout out to spectrum for being the absolute worst. Uh, that was fun. Really, really fun on Thursday night to be like, Oh, Hey, I'm about to watch Florida and Utah, you know, get Claire, you know, post, uh, post bath time. I'm like getting ready to go. I'm going to watch that and have the Mizzou game up on, you know, streaming. And then only to find out that that, that, you know, negotiations between Spectrum and Disney had hit a snag and Spectrum is like, Oh no, we're on your side. No, 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 you are not. I can promise you that. So shout out to them for being the worst. Well, shout Spectrum out to my brother, and Disney, two of Orlando's very own, just betraying you like that. How could they do that, man? You know, they lost the rights to UCF stadium. Times are tough at Spectrum, I guess. Uh, apparently, yeah. Spectrum Charter, for those who felt that over the weekend. Uh, trust me, I, I feel your pain. It was rough. It made the the weekend set up a little bit atypical. And yeah, I wasn't necessarily in my element. Not a fun thing to have to adjust to. But again, really appreciate my brother for hooking me up with a YouTube TV login. Definitely need to get YouTube TV. Don't know why I've delayed that for so long. This might have just pushed me in that direction. So here's how we're going to do this. Like I said, with the preview stuff, we are going to just do full breakdowns of power five games. And then we're going to do something a little bit different because we're not going to be doing like full breakdowns of SEC teams against group of five or FCS type stuff. So we're going to call the post game stuff that we do. That isn't a game breakdown. Yarna. And I'm just going to ask questions because I feel like honestly, that's something we do really well. And we're going to dig into a a ton of the, the different things that happen outside of these so far, only three Power Five games that the SEC had during Week One. So we're just going to go in order. You want to start with Florida, Utah? It's, sure, I man, know you want to start with Florida, Utah. Tons of takeaways. Tons and tons of takeaways from Florida losing this game. The no Cam Rising thing didn't really matter, as we found out. Uh, On the, the first play, we found out. <laughs> yeah, the very first play, which I was watching this on delay. And my, my buddy Bronson, he bet on Utah and immediately, t- like when I got a text at 802 and he's like texting me, I'm like, okay, something definitely just happened. And sure enough, home run play from the jump. Yeah. Utah was ready to go. Florida, not so much. 
ready to go. And if you disagree with that, perhaps you missed the part where Florida got penalized for having two number threes on the field on the same punt return play and then extended a Utah drive that led to a touchdown. Um, that that was the story of the night pretty much right there. Like Florida just could not get out of its own way that to think that you get flagged for having two number threes on, out on the field in the same play. And they were in the same vicinity too, which was mm-hmm. actually kind of confusing. Sometimes I think some of that's a little bit ticky tack. It's like, all right, just one of these guys is like a lineman or something. And yet they're not involved in the play. They were like both right there. I would have been confused watching that, but it was like a close. Yeah, that, like, Wait a minute, How did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, wait a minute, what? If I was the ref in that sequence, I would totally be looking around saying, is everybody seeing what I'm seeing? They're, they're both wearing number three, right? My eyes are playing. Surely I'm not me. going crazy. It's like like uh, before the podcast, we were talking to Dan, the producer. I was like, I know Connor's audio is low. You're not gaslighting me. That was the number three. It's just like, this is so obvious. There are two number threes next to each other. Surely my brain's not playing tricks on me, right? Yes. Uh, and b- by the way, thank you for those of us who have stuck with us and been a little bit mm-hmm. patient. We've been working with a new system for the last month and we're still trying to figure out some of the, some of the different tricks with, with the audio setup and all that. So apologies if there have been episodes that haven't necessarily been like what you've come to expect from us, but hopefully we're going to have that kind of smoothed out from this point moving forward. If you're on the video crowd and you're watching Will and you're wondering why Will's a little bit blurry, Will's in an Airbnb right now uh, in Orlando. So not in his, not in his typical setup, but yeah, Watching this game on Thursday night, Florida, I thought, showed so many weaknesses. So many. When you have a team that has one returning starter on the offensive line, and then you find out that he's not playing, you are you know it's going to be rough in a lot of ways. And you're going to have to overcome that no matter what your offensive game plan is going to be. They could not convert a third down to save their lives. Florida was one for 13 on third down, and their first third down conversion came with 12 minutes left in the fourth quarter. Not great. Probably not going to win on the road at a place where they haven't lost in front of fans in five years, even if they do have a third-string quarterback out there and they're playing a two-quarterback system, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Florida's quarterback system. Graham Mertz. Let's let's talk a little Graham Mertz, Will. Let's do it. Yeah. He looked all right. He looked all right in moments. Had they converted those early red zone trips, I think it's a much different story. But instead, those first three red zone trips, three points because of penalties. You had weird play calling. You had a missed kick. It was the the number early on didn't really indicate, I thought, how Mertz looked. And I didn't expect to say that. But their lone touchdown of the night, a phenomenal play by Caleb Douglas, wherein Chris Fowler, I don't even think, realized that he caught the ball. It was mm-hmm. it was weird listening to that. I don't know if Chris Fowler had some moments where it's just like he, he thought that one kick went in and it actually didn't. The Utah kick. Weird game from from friend of the program, Chris Fowler. But anyway, that that touchdown, like that was their lone big time splash play where they actually converted. And it just kind of felt like Florida was going to maybe move the football and then find a way to ruin it. Like that, it was just inevitable, those those mistakes. And I, I just, I thought Florida wasn't going to have a chance once you saw how bad that offensive line was. And mm-hmm. those backs, look, Trevor Etienne, he's all being the drum team. He is. He ain't he's a pass protector. Prime. That's not what he's out there. Did you hear me? His brother Trey, he should be playing for prime. Uh, rough look. Maybe, maybe Travis, Travis Etienne, maybe lay off the Twitter machine while his brother's mm-hmm. playing 
not not an ideal situation. Although I did understand last year when he's like, you need to feed him the rock more. Agreed, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not the best look to do that in week one, but that's neither here nor there. Here's the issue. You don't want Graham Mertz in third and seven. I went back and looked this up because I was uh, I was thinking about this on Friday morning. In his career at Wisconsin, when he's passing on third and seven or longer, he averages 6.8 yards per attempt. He's got a 7 to 10 TD to INT ratio, which actually got better last year. Converted 37 total third down on third and seven or longer via the pass, which is basically like one per start. Every start that he's going to have, he's going to convert one of those. That's it. 26.7% conversion percentage. So one out of every times that you're in third and seven or longer and you're passing, he'll get it for you. And I leave out the rushing because in his three years as a starter, I looked this up as well. He only converted a third or seven or longer with a scramble on four occasions. That's not Mm -hmm. happening. Just a little perspective. Anthony Richardson in his lone season as a starter, roughly one third of the games that Graham Mertz has started, converted a third or seven or longer with his legs four times. So that's that's not a part of the Graham Mertz experience. You just don't Mm -hmm. want him in those spots. You really don't. And I'm worried for Florida's for Florida's sake for uh, on a few different uh, a few different elements of this the ground game. Well, did you feel like there were any holes whatsoever for Trevor Etienne and Montreal Johnson to run through because those guys felt like they were running through a brick wall every single time. No. Yeah, and I mean it, it's funny because as you said, you know, it's like you <laughs> I at the time was kind of just like oh, Graham Graham Merch is looking rough, but you kind of look back at it and it's like we just kept seeing him. That's the problem. Like we know the best version of Graham Mertz cannot execute the game plan that he was given <clears throat> on Thursday. He Graham Mertz passed the ball 44 times. <laughs> so that's a pretty good, uh, what's up? You don't want that. That that's, that is bad news bears. If Graham Mertz is throwing the football 44 times for you. Yeah. So I, I think that's, I mean, and I think Billy Napier's, I would hope smart enough to realize that he had to do that or he didn't choose to do that coming into the game. But as you said, he found no running room with these great stable of backs that we were talking about. And I mean, we talked about the key, keys to victory for Florida, our ETN, who was totally neutralized, Pearsall, who still looks like a, a man among boys out there. I mean, it looks like a continuation of that FSU game we always joked about. Every time it felt like they yep. threw it up to Pearsall, it was like a one-handed grab. It was like this dude is helping his NFL stock. So every game he plays, because he looks like Superman compared to all the other Florida receivers. And just in general, I think he's a great player. But, I mean, it was like every time the ball was near his direction, he was like sucking up like a vacuum. But that was kind of the one positive for the offense was Ricky Pearsall. And honestly, we could say Graham Mertz played better than we expected because he just played so much. I would expect yep. several more turnovers than that out of him if he's going to throw the ball 44 times. It's true. And, you know, so much of this is just, are you behind schedule or are you not behind schedule? Florida is behind mm-hmm. schedule way too much. And when you can't run the football and your primary tailbacks, your one-two punch, this one-two punch that should be the strength of your entire team, when they have 10 carries for 31 yards and your longest run of the night is eight yards, you're putting your quarterback in, in a tough spot. And you could argue, well, some of that is because you don't respect Graham Mertz and so the teams are going to load the box. Yeah, I get it. That's that's definitely part of it as well. But yeah, it's just a bad combination right now. And it's really tough to be able to, to, to feel good about where this offense is going to be at 
moving forward, despite the fact that I thought defensively there were some some signs of promise in the second half. I mean, Florida just had the ball the entire time. And so Florida's defense really it felt like a couple of three and outs. They had the Mertz pick that set up the short field where Utah was able to, to have a touchdown right after that. But like they at least fought. That's the good news. And if you're if you're with a, a new defensive coordinator, which Florida has with, with Austin Armstrong, that's what you kind of hope to see. But the concerning thing, and Herbie talked about this, they look slow. They look slow. That, that's that's not an ideal thing to to be to have like your your week one announcer saying about you. These guys are mm-hmm. they're they're big. You know they they've got the size, but they they just look like they're behind and. That that's like Utah's not even a team that's going to run tempo on you. This this ain't mm-hmm. Tennessee or Ole Miss or something like that. They're not going to come out there and force you to do that. And then Utah looks like it. Kyle Whittingham looked like he realized that. And Andy Ludwig, who's a super underrated offensive coordinator, it looked like they sort of realized, oh, we should really tempo these guys a bit. And they did it more than what they would typically do within the flow of that offense because I think they saw some of those hands on the on the knees and and they're like this this team looks a little bit gassed. I'm not going to chalk all of that up to the mountain air up there in Utah, but man, I I just I don't know how that's going to look against Tennessee. And even though I picked Florida to beat Tennessee in the preseason, I'm now looking at that matchup going, ooh man. Um, that that's going to be a an uphill climb for this Florida team. They they have a long way to go um, before that. Can we talk about the Napier conversation, Will? Um, really quick, yeah. I'd say it's such an interesting juxtaposition from last year because I totally agree with you. And we both discussed how last year was so strange that Florida showed up and just manhandled Utah up front. Like that was what we did not expect yep. from that game last year. We thought they would kind of lay down and get it together. This year was almost the exact opposite. It looked like Utah were maybe not bigger but more physical, more physically dominant. And when you talk about teams that can't run the football, when you talk about receivers running wide open, when you talk about stuff like that, it's like you would think that this Florida team could build on what it did last year, which was, hey, we're the big, we're the bullies. Even though we're this rebuilding SEC team, we're still an SEC team. We have these six, five dudes from the swamp that you just can't block. You can't tackle them. And it looked completely different this year. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, you can credit some of the younger guys like Shamar James had a great, um, or sorry. Yeah. Shamar James had a great game. Uh, I think that like, some of these younger guys are starting to play, but it's still just a roster that like it's kind of trying to find its identity, trying to get everyone on the same page. And in the transfer portal era, if you don't have that type of, I hate to say leadership because I don't know these guys, but if you don't have something that can unite them all, just seems like a bunch of individual like baseball players out there kind of trying to run their own scheme, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I definitely got that sense. And Utah looks like the team that was going to be more more physical at the point of attack. And even with their their two-quarterback system, it just kind of felt like Florida wasn't going to be able to make that game-changing play. And they weren't mm-hmm. going to be able to do that thing in that spot to totally flip the momentum of the game. Every big momentum-shifting play went Utah's way, it, it felt like. I mean, I guess with the exception of the, 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 the um, touchdown in the end zone, the really nice play on a, mm-hmm. what was, I guess you can call it a, a jump ball. But yeah, of course, you see this game, you see the way that this plays out. And because it's Thursday night, it's on ESPN, it feels big because Herbie and Fowler are there. Everybody immediately shifts to the Billy Napier conversation. Napier's mm-hmm. not going to last. If you would search his name on Twitter, Florida's going to fire him. He's on the hot seat, blah, 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 blah. I don't know how many times we've got to say the $31 million buyout thing, but mm-hmm. if you're just going to continue to, if people are just going to continue to overlook this and pretend that it's nothing and pretend that 
no his no buyout in the history of college football has been more than 21 and a half million dollars to Gus Malzahn. If we're just going to pretend to that that doesn't exist and that president isn't there, fine, I guess. Here's where it is significant. And this is this is the the point that I think we need to remember because we're allowed to look at these situations with nuance, right? We don't have to look at everything as so black and white. We can have a little bit of context, a little bit of perspective for the things that we're talking about, which I realize mm-hmm. is really difficult in week one. Billy Napier is facing what we think right now as we sit here and breathe in the first week of September in the year of our Lord, 2023. We think he is facing the most difficult schedule in college football next year. There's a case to be made. He has the most difficult schedule in college football this year. Yep. If you go six and six, and it's it's like it's more of the same, right? Like if, if that happens this year. You're on every hot seat list in America, and I won't be talking about the number $31 million. It's still going to be a number that's in the 20s. I can't remember the exact breakdown. It's still it's still a lot of money. But year three, that changes. That entire conversation changes. And if your goal right now is we're building this up through recruiting, and this is the way that we're going to do it, you can go back and you can look at the history of coaches that are such obvious hot seat candidates and you can see how that impacts their recruiting going into that season. Mm-hmm. That's the issue for Billy Napier. You do not want that because right now you got recruiting momentum. You have it. It's there. Like you got the number three recruiting class in the country going into 2024. You've got your quarterback and DJ Lagway. We'll wait and see kind of how that plays out, how he develops all those different things. But this can disrupt all of that. If you're really mm-hmm. bad this year and everybody is just assuming that you're going to see every, if you search hot seat lists, it's going to be your picture 80% of the time that's coming up is the no doubt or obvious one. So I think that's how we need to discuss this conversation with his job security and remembering it is still just week one. And last year they win this game and how much did it matter for the course of their season this year? They lose this game. Who knows how this team is going to improve. It's tough to see that path to improvement, but I think that's probably the way that we should be talking about Billy Napier and his job security. Yeah, I mean, so I think a couple of things, right? It's the version of Florida that deserves to be judged is like Billy Napier's team, right? And we keep talking about it. It's that like, if we want to say all the Mullen guys were losers, and I'm ready to hear that, let's see a team without those guys leading it. And I mean, it seems like DJ Lagway is going to be the first like Billy Napier quarterback that we can kind of hang our hats on. And he's a really highly rated quarterback. He's exactly what Florida fans should be helpful about. So if I were the Florida administration, I would not sacrifice that version of Florida for go fish for like, let's tear this down and build it up. Because as we've talked about, if you hired Nick Saban last year, I'm not sure he's living up to your expectations in years two and three, based on how difficult the schedule is based on the fact that you have to go play the number 14 team returning Pac-12 champion that smoked USC twice on the road. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You beat him last year at home. Count that as just, chalk that up to Billy Napier being a good coach. You don't then expect to go on the road and beat a version of Utah. You're not going to sweep Utah. You're not going to sweep Utah. You, you're like back-to-back six and six seasons. You're not going to sweep Utah. It's just not going to happen. So you got to have realistic expectations because like, you know, what you wanted to look for in this game is your team being competitive. And I'm going to be honest, I don't really think we saw that. But at the same time, Utah is a team that's goals are so much different from Florida's last year because they have a, a coach who's in what year 15? Like he took over from Urban Meyer at Utah, <laughs> like before Florida. So point being like, yeah, I think that you just like when, when it's on the road, continuity matters and they just don't have a ton. And like I said, yeah, you could maybe blame uh, Billy Napier for not doing better than Graham Mertz in the portal. In the portal, but and you know the Rashala situation was weird. But at the same time, like 
Would you rather have Rashada than Lagway, who, I mean, your coach is telling you is more talented than him? So on some level, you just have to trust the people you hire. And, you know, I, I will make fun of Florida. I will get on the Bird app and laugh. But at the same time, I think it would be super foolish to listen to someone like me who's just making jokes over a structural building of a culture at a program like Florida. I felt watching Graham Mertz that if you could have switched the offensive line, if you could have switched Anthony Richardson to be Florida's quarterback this year and had Graham Mertz be Florida's quarterback last year, Florida would mm-hmm. have been suited so much better for that because of the lack mm-hmm. of protection stuff breaks down. You want yep. Anthony Richardson in those spots. Graham Mertz does not have much of a chance if the protection is going to break down that much. And not every team is going to be as good up front as Utah is, especially playing that game in Salt Lake city. But at the same, at the same time, I, I did find myself being like, wait a minute. So Anthony Richardson probably could have been a better version in this Florida offense with with its holes and limitations. And Graham Mertz could have actually probably succeeded more in last year's version. And maybe they just don't have that timing right. But yeah, this uh, this was not a, a way that Florida obviously wanted to start. And there's, there's questions about this team. There's a reason why they weren't picked to finish as one of the top half teams in the SEC East. Like th- these weaknesses were there and Florida has a long way to go to be able to, to work through that. Um, Let's let's stick in the SEC East, Will. Virginia, mm-hmm. Tennessee, this was never really much of a game. Tennessee was never going to lose this football game in Nashville. Right. It was not going to happen. The the battle in the trenches, not close. Not close. And you want mm-hmm. like obviously Virginia playing with heavy hearts um after the tragedy that, that took place last year. And you know, you you obviously know that they're playing with it with a different sort of purpose. They have different goals in mind of what they're trying to work through as opposed to the place that Tennessee's at with a program. So understanding all of those things, I think we can talk about this game still with a little bit of uh, objective perspective. I wonder if Josh Heupel watched this Virginia team on film and thought, hey, you know what? We could have Cooper Mays out there, but I don't really think we need to rush him back. Tennessee's starting center didn't even play in this one. And it did not matter at all. And the explosive plays for Tennessee that we have grown so accustomed to seeing. Nobody in America had more 30-yard plays than Tennessee last year. Didn't Mm -hmm. matter in this game. Tennessee had one passing play of 20 yards. And it was a play where Joe Milton made sure that he didn't overthrow Ramel Keaton after Ramel Keaton just dropped that one earlier. That was Mm -hmm. a dime oh you know how devastated i was like i don't i'm not i'm not sitting there rooting for tennessee and when mel keaton dropped that you're just like oh come on man I, like because you're right you, like you when, knew when he would have to take something off of it like after you try one of those it hits like that you're like oh i gotta like take it so yeah you're, you're exactly right it's like now this is gonna affect the next one because he dropped that one but credit to joe milton he made the adjustment and that was mm-hmm. the difference between like year one 2021 versus what's now year three in this system in 2023. He actually made that adjustment. Um, Tennessee's ground game though. It's just so good. It's fun to watch, man. It's, it's so multifaceted Jabari small, Jalen Wright, Dylan Sampson, plus the occasional run from Joe Milton where he can step up in the pocket now at this point of his career. And then you probably have these linebackers who are realizing I've got to tackle this Greek God in the mm-hmm. open field with a head of steam, that doesn't seem like fun. Dylan Sampson was awesome. He had four touchdowns in this game, the first of which I thought was probably Joe Milton's most important play of the day. If you if you miss this, you don't know what I'm talking about, or maybe you just forgot. The opening drive, you know Tennessee can't be stopped on opening drives. That's our running mm-hmm. joke. Like 
85 Bears, they're not stopping Tennessee on the opening drive. Even last year, where I thought that kind of faded a little bit just because they were better in the second quarter, it wasn't such a significant difference. Tennessee was mm-hmm. still an SEC best with eight touchdowns on that opening drive. That's that's crazy. Yep. That's really good production. What do we say? Scripted plays. Scripted so plays, Josh Heupel. Because sometimes he would get down there in two or three plays and he would have more scripted plays for that next drive. Yep. Yep, that's 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 a really good point. Yeah, if you just score a seventy-five yard touchdown, guess what? You get to keep your script, and your script mm-hmm. is going to last you two, maybe three drives. That's ideal. They should just do that every single time. But on this sequence, where Tennessee was moving the ball really well, and Virginia makes a stop on third down, it's fourth and five in the red zone, and Heupel trusts Joe Milton in a passing in a passing situation, and Milton surveyed. At least two of his progressions, maybe three, but he kind of worked right to left and he works his way all the way back to the left. He's got Dylan Sampson in the flat. He makes a guy miss in the end zone. Just like that, Tennessee's kind of off and running. That right there is the stuff that I want to see from Joe Milton. Like that's, that's to me what's going to make this thing work and what's going to keep all the Nico chatter quiet at least temporarily because yes we want to see the occasional bombs we want to see the the moments that just make us go holy crap who is this alien who is playing quarterback right now it is fun mm-hmm. as hell even though it's a little bit overblown at this point joe milton's telling espn you know on college game day beforehand yeah i threw a football 90 yards i'm thinking Over them myself, mountains. video or it didn't happen mm-hmm. <laughs> look if you're going to be more than uncle rico you got to be able to hit Dylan Sampson in the flat on fourth and five. You did that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're showing those signs. Do I think, though, that Joe Milton has Heisman upside and that he's going to have a four-game stretch where we're wondering if he's the best quarterback in the SEC? No, I don't. This game was a reminder that he can have those those stretches where I, I can't remember it was – it was a, a three-play stretch where he was off target on each throw to a different mm-hmm. receiver, a different type of throw and a different receiver. And I think the last one was like he airmailed one to Ramel Keaton in the post or something like that. And you're just like, okay, yeah, that's that's what he does. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Tennessee's offensive floor is so high. It is so high. Just because there are so many guys who can help Joe Milton and not just Josh Heupel and Joey Halsley calling these plays, but it's the ground game and it's the things that those receivers can do after the catch. Like you see some of the plays that Squirrel White's making. Joe Tess is like a squirrel gets loose or something like like those. Those are the moments that you're reminded like. Tennessee has has so many different ways to be able to beat you. And their their best is still going to be really darn good, especially if that that front seven on the defensive side dominates like it did on Saturday. Like James Pierce, Aaron Beasley, those, those guys were Amari Thomas, those guys were everywhere. They they have so many seniors in that secondary, which like I'll, I'll wait and see a little bit, kind of what it looks like against a team that can actually throw the ball. Virginia lost their starting quarterback too. They didn't really have much of a chance to string first downs together. But did you think that game looked really routine for Tennessee? Because pre-Josh Heupel, that was not the type of game that Tennessee would ever play against Power 5 competition. 
Yeah, I mean, I do think they started a little bit slow. I mean, I, I will say that. I think that, you know, they did get the touchdown on fourth down, I understand, but it was an opening drive touchdown. And then their offense sputtered. They had turnover on down. So, like, I will say this is almost exactly what I expected out of this game because we talked about it. It was like, they're going to come out and sputter early, but UVA just does not have the horses to stop them. And, like, not to dump on UVA. We talked about the situation they're in, but they just don't have the level of guys. And you could tell those guys are fighting hard. The running back played really well. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this is just – an SEC team who is on one page, like we keep talking about, who's in, you know, now year three of a hypo scheme. I know they've had different OCs, but yeah, I think that this is a good, like for Tennessee, it's always been about the floor. It's always been about the floor because we know what the ceiling is. We don't need to find the ceiling on this Tennessee team. It's Bazooka Joe hitting squirrel white 90 yards down the field for an easy touchdown. This is, they, they found a way to hit the floor, have a turnover on downs, and not just panic and be like, oh, my gosh, we're same old Tennessee. We're going to start, like, clinching and start missing tackles. So I will give them credit. Again, UVA is not some super team, but the fact that they were able to sputter and then pick it back up and just routinely beat a, beat a team that doesn't really have it, I think is a great sign for Tennessee football. Joe Milton has not thrown an interception in a Tennessee uniform. Isn't that crazy? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, for a guy that – makes mistakes he still makes mistakes and has pretty well documented accuracy issues he has not thrown an interception and okay but imagine catching that, a Joe Milton interception <laughs> right because we've seen is, it hit off the hands of guys that know where it's gonna be if you jump up and you're just like ah! <laughs> you hit you like a grenade you fall down <laughs> Yeah, guys are just not signed enough to to want to want to get in front of one of those things. There's no doubt about it. A lot but of there, there is something going on. To that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. you're right. I'm just P- playing with PBUs you. PBUs are PBUs are very different than INTs. That much we know for sure. But I, I think there's something to be said for how calm he looks in the pocket. And even if it's not always the right decision, the right read, or something like that. He's usually not this guy who like does something really stupid as the pocket is collapsing and mm-hmm. he puts you in harm's way. And unless he starts throwing picks left and right, I, I think that's why they're f- part of the reason why their floor is so unbelievably high is they mm-hmm. they're not a team that's going to that's going to all of a sudden surrender horrible field position, although they got to get the punting stuff figured out. Heifel talked about that afterwards. The punting was atrocious. If there was a knock on Tennessee in this game, that was probably it. But like, I just think that he gives you a really nice chance to be able to win a lot of games, even though we still have skepticism about everybody that says he's the most talented quarterback in the country. I'm like, yeah, but the most talented quarterback in the country should probably be a little bit better in the intermediate passing game if you're talking about it objectively. But mm-hmm. I think that he's shown growth. And if you're a Tennessee fan, don't set your expectations at Heisman. Don't even set your expectations at Hendon Hooker. Just set your expectations as, can this guy execute this offense? Are we going to be able to win a lot of games? Are we going to have some laughers where it looks like teams don't belong on the same field as us? The answer to that is yes. And that's, I think, the encouraging thing. Obviously, I understand this is probably going to be one of the three easiest games on Tennessee's schedule, even mm-hmm. easier than UTSA at home. I mean, like, let's, let's they got be honest, some fight Virginia's now. not yeah. really in a place there yeah utsa is the game that everybody has circled as oh sleeper game for for tennessee i'm mm-hmm. still not necessarily assuming that tennessee is going to have any problem putting away utsa but like you said that is what i hoped and expected to see from this tennessee team for all the the teams in the in the sec who are kind of like yeah you know what that really wasn't what we wanted in the opener i thought all things considered for for the vols if you understood what joe milton was still trying to work through 
I thought that was that was pretty encouraging. Any other thoughts on that before we go to the Battle of the Carolinas? Yes. So I'll say you're right, but for a different reason. Okay. So for the a turnover for Josh Heupel's offense is three incompletions that runs off a minute of real life time and a punt. I don't think Joe Milton is going to be throwing interceptions, but I think you're exactly right in that hitting the intermediate passing game, checking down the running backs, keeping the clock running is how you avoid mistakes in that Josh Heupel system. Because at the end of the day, yeah, some of these plays don't go down as you know turnovers, but if you see the defense start to get gassed and then Bazooka Joe goes out there and overshoots a couple of guys, throws a third incompletion on third and 10, and now the defense is back on the field and the other offense is feeling energized, that is what they have to avoid with this quarterback because that was something that Hendon Hooker was so good at, right? He was so good at checking it down. He was so good at seeing the running leads, getting five yards on a scramble, you know, living to see another day. Um, yeah, and I think that this offense will change with new clock rules, and that's one thing I'm really excited to see as the season goes on. But at the same time, it's about him – taking the easy play, not necessarily avoiding another player having the ball, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. That's that's a good point because there will be moments like that where your defense is just going to feel kind of gassed in ways mm-hmm. that I don't really think they have throughout the, the time that we watched Tennant Hooker operating this offense. And there mm-hmm. could be a couple of rough stretches. I don't think that it's realistic to expect Tennessee's defense to look like that week in, week out. But for a week one performance, I thought that was about as good as Tim Banks's unit could have hoped to have come out. It felt like they were they were pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, very different story with another SEC East team, South Carolina. Oof. Who um, let's let's just say the Battle of Carolinas did not end up so well for for Shane Beamer's squad. Mm-hmm. This is one of the first times I've ever said this, and I I don't want to say that. I'm, I'm, I don't ever like to say that I'm the first person to ever be on a take, but this one I might be. Okay. I felt bad for Spencer Rattler watching him play football. <laughs> Think about that. Hmm. I felt bad for Spencer Rattler watching him play football because if you saw that South Carolina offensive line, which was just dominated by Gene Chizik's defense, might I add? Listen, Gene Chizik's comeback about. story. That was what we were first on right there. That was a dominant performance by the defense. Some people are saying that he's at the top of the Broyles Award watch list. I am I am some people, but I'm just saying he, he is up there. Uh, very improved, vastly improved defense. Uh, yeah, this was so bad, though, for South Carolina. Against a UNC defense that last year had 17 sacks on the season, South mm-hmm. Carolina allowed nine sacks. They allowed 14 tackles for loss. Will, we ran for two more yards than South Carolina in this football game. You and I. Congratulations, man. We did it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's tough. I thought you were talking about yeah, Indiana um, after their, their big week. I was like, me and you. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it, it was it was just bad. Missed assignments. They couldn't engage. Mm-hmm. It was just total liability. Well, we were texting about this, and I said the only play that South Carolina realized it could run was some sort of a quick hitting pass, and it felt a little bit mm-hmm. at times like what we saw last year from the Kentucky offense with one and done OC Rich Gangarello. It, like that was that was kind of it, and some of it, yeah, I guess you put on Dow Loggins, you put. Some of it on the health of South Carolina. Injuries just were brutal for them in this game. Juice Wells was banged up coming into this one. He gets hurt. He's not able to go. That's one of the better receivers in all of college football. 
Nicky Manwari gets hurt on the first defensive play from scrimmage. This is South Carolina's leading tackler who was, yep. in my opinion, worthy of preseason first team all SEC, a guy that covers up so many of those holes on defense and not a very deep secondary, Shane Beamer has admitted, and you lose that guy, he just can't give it a go with the hamstring. It was it was such a frustrating disaster for South Carolina that th- this is all you need to know about the way that this game played out. We talked about with Florida, the two number threes extending mm-hmm. the drive for Utah that told the story of the game. The story of the game for South Carolina, they came out of a timeout trying to defend on the goal line. They came out of a timeout with 13 men, Will. 13 men. And UNC still scored that. mm, That's the best part. I was was talking to my boys. I was like, how do you not just rush the passer at that point? You're going to have at least three free rushers if you send that type of pressure. I I thought they were... Like they, I thought they were going to whistle it dead or something like that. Cause right. I'm looking at the right side. I'm like, they have like 15 guys on the right side of that defense. And then the, the play just didn't even matter. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was really rough. It didn't, it didn't even matter that they actually, I thought did some things well against Drake may uh, two interceptions of him and mm-hmm. made him look a little bit mortal. I don't think the Drake may preseason Heisman bets had, a whole lot of momentum gained from watching him. Although he looks when he's comfortable, he, he is so fun to watch and his, his mobility, like he is, he is in my opinion, like the real deal. And mm-hmm. he's going to make so many ACC defenses continue to look really bad. I'm not breaking any news by, by saying that, but there were a lot of moments where I thought Spencer Rattler's doing things at an even higher level than, than Drake may, but different set of circumstances with the the surroundings and all that. But this is a problem. This is this is a big, big problem. Of everything that I saw in week one, maybe with the exception like, with the exception of TCU, everything that I saw in the SEC, this was the single biggest area of concern that I saw. I am mm-hmm. terrified of having South Carolina as my team to finish second in the SEC East. I already feel bad about that. Sean McDonough said on the broadcast that Spencer Radler isn't going to be able to stay all he- healthy all year if this line doesn't improve, he might not be healthy through September. If this offensive yeah. line does not get better and it sucks because you know what? Spencer Rattler looks good when he's comfortable. He looks good. Mm-hmm. You can tell like he has cleaned up some of those mechanics, some of the footwork things. But when you've been sacked that many times, you saw it at the end, he starts to get happy feet, even when there's not pressure yep. and he starts sensing pressure. That's not even there. I don't know how this changes, Will. It's not like they had a bunch of injuries. This is week this is week one. This is week one. And if you're Dow Loggins, how do you work around that? Like this, mm-hmm. this issue might be up there with the quarterback situation that Shane Beamer had to work through in year one. Like that's how much of an uh, of an uphill climb this could make things. I came away. So let me feeling ask you this real quick. Really, really Who's offensive line? Who, whose offensive line do you think had a worse showing? Florida or South Carolina? I'm gonna say South Carolina. I'm going to say South Carolina because, mm-hmm. man, it's it's the perspective. It, at least yeah. Florida was on the road at Utah. And, and they got 44 pass attempts off. Graham like, Burst looked decent. Like, he was getting pressure on him. But it, it wasn't like Rattler who was like, we can't run and we can't throw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would say 
you're we're splitting hairs here, but yeah, I was I was more concerned watching watching the soccer. And at least with Florida, you're like, all right, we're gonna get our starting center back. It, it's gonna right. be okay. It's a new look offensive line. You can kind of figure this out. This is this has been a, a big area of concern for South Carolina. And maybe I, I ignored too much of that in the preseason, but those issues mm-hmm. in the trenches are still there. This was really, really bad. If you're a South Carolina fan, I think you're having a tough time picturing how this team is going to stay afloat in the sec this year i really do yeah so i was um <laughs> i was watching this game thinking about this i just like did a little bit of research i just didn't know this off the top of my head but um we'll talk about the year 1987 okay so ronald reagan era as we all know um it was the first time that mac brown played frank beamer as a head coach okay these guys obviously who could forget pretty similar stories they're pretty good friends. You know, they played a ton in the ACC. Mac Brown obviously started at UNC before he went to Texas, and now he has returned. And I was sitting there thinking, you have Mac Brown on one side of the ball, who hired Phil Longo, who was obviously like the greatest, the hottest OC name last year, replaced him as this quarterback in Drake May. Seems like, yeah, okay, they have a new OC. It was almost hard to forget, or easy to forget that they had a new OC. But they were immediately kind of more or less on the same page. South Carolina is always going to have some swamp monsters. They're always always going to get turnovers. That's what they do. But I'm sitting there watching this coach that was friends with Shane Beamer's dad. Adjust better than Shane Beamer. And I'm thinking to myself, this is why you hire the young coach usually is that he gets innovative. He doesn't hire the NFL retread offensive coordinator in Dowell Loggins. That is like a Bo Pelini hire. I'm shocked that he hired a guy with that track record. I would think he would get some guy, because at least with Austin Armstrong at Florida, that's a young guy who has, you know, the riz. He has like some boldness. He has that BDE to him. And so guys will play for a guy like that. But that was why I was always pretty low on Doggin, uh, on Loggins. And I feel like I should have been meaner because this offense came out there and from but the second drive, it felt like they were looking at each other like they didn't know what to do. And when you see that in an offense as a defense, you know it's over with. It's like you listen to any – I'm going to switch sports. You listen to any great basketball player, and they start to see guys starting to lose that confidence to take the shots. They start to see guys getting timid and passing the ball. That's what we saw all night at the South Carolina. And it's not Spencer Rattler's fault almost at all. I mean, that dude was playing his butt off. He has done a complete 180 from we th- we thought he was like this diva who didn't want to get his jersey dirty, who was trying to sign autographs and not, you know, not be this hard worker. He was out there like screaming at his offensive line and his, and his uh, receivers and his coaches by the end of the game. Like that shot of him looking at the sideline, like, what do you want me to do about this? Truly, yeah. what do you want me to do? You want me to grow more legs? You want me to fly? How can I help you? And whatever it would have been, he could have done it or he would have done it, but he couldn't. Um, so yeah, I just I was really disappointed by this because, to your point, I think South Carolina's defense looked fine. I think their special teams. I mean, they converted one of those Beamer ball turnovers and then immediately turned the back the ball back over on offense, and it turned into like what would have been like a twenty yard kickoff. It's like guys, we have two the two hard phases figured out. Could we just play mid offense and we could be like Iowa plus from last year? No, okay. Yeah the uh, the onside kick coming out of halftime where the chain gang is Beamer was pissed about this. Yeah. It's like they're over there eating hot dogs. The clock was wrong <laughs> the entire game. And the chain gang was like late coming back out of halftime. And mm-hmm. they're they're sitting there trying to pull off an onside kick. And the obviously the sense of urgency was there. And I think some of that too is Beamer realized, well, I've got my best offensive player on the sideline, Juice Wells. My best defensive mm-hmm. player is also on the sideline and Nick Eamon Worry. And man, I got to find some ways. And they executed that. If they can get yeah. that fourth down probably in that spot, 
maybe maybe the second half has a little bit of a different feel and they kind of just hang around it's a little bit more of a tense game or something like that. I, I i don't know but those weaknesses were just so unbelievably obvious and i think some of this is roster construction i do i'll, I'll criticize mm-hmm. I'll, I'll criticize the the transfer portal stuff because if they had added a running back in the transfer portal and I'm not putting the blame on Dakarian Joyner, who was able to get into the end zone, love what he's represented for that program. But if they had, like I was talking to Brad Crawford about this, if they had Logan Diggs, who Brian Kelly got from Notre Dame, if mm-hmm. they had won that battle, if they had gone after, I don't know, even a Ray Davis or something like that from Vandy, if they mm-hmm. had been able to get some one of these running backs from the transfer portal, I think maybe it's a little bit of a different story. And then being willing to do kind of what Hugh Freeze did with his offensive line, Go out and get guys who have started a ton of games at the group of five level. Get guys who are fourth and fifth year type guys who can at least give you a prayer, man. Like mm-hmm. that, that to me was, was just so evident. They look like a team with a lot of weaknesses and Beamer ball is going to find a way to overcome some of those weaknesses at some of those points. And they're probably going to win some of those games that we're not expecting them to, but I don't even know how you can look at that Mississippi state game coming up and think that they're going to have much of a chance against that defensive front and all the yeah. ways that they're going to want to send pressure with Zach Garnett's defense and all the complicated things they can do with Boogie Watson and jet Johnson and Jalen Crumbity and these guys like South Carolina has real concerns. I try not to overreact to week one, but Man, if you're if you're selling yourself on this team and and what you saw from them against UNC, I, I, you're you're a more optimistic person than I am. I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, me and me and my buddies, we have this ongoing like debate about what's the definition of a blowout. And like one of the things that I've always said is like blowouts are situational. And I was like, this is a good example of that. This is a North Carolina team that threw two interceptions, a South Carolina team that recovered an onside kick, and they still never felt like they were going to win that game. And when you have things like that go on where it's like everything is kind of going your way from like a uh, not like a big play, but I mean, it's all about possessions. Football is a game of possessions. So if you think, OK, one of those picks goes away, that's probably another at least a touchdown removed or touchdown in one direction. The onside kick, same thing. And it's like all three of those uh, possession creating plays went South Carolina's way and they still lost by 14. So sometimes like 14 feels like 30 because you never felt in the game, even though you kept doing stuff like that. And that's what's such a weird match between this offense and the rest of the team. Cause you have a defense that again, never says die. They're always, you know, running to the ball. They're always trying to make the right play. And the special teams and Shane Beamer are just so like, we're about it. We're going to play hard. We're going to like take these risks. We're going to do all this. And the offense gets out on the field. And it's like, I feel like a less miles football team with not five-star talent has been transported to 2023. Like I'm sitting here watching this team. I'm like, you know, you got to play offense, right? Like, so it's so interesting because like, it just doesn't all fit together in a way. Like the defense and special teams just have so much confidence when you expect your offense to have the, the most confidence out of the team. I should also add Xavier Legat is playing his tail off. You talk about a guy yeah. that is vastly improved after he was not a part of that offense whatsoever last year. And then I think they said it on the broadcast. It was like, once he returned that kick against A&M, he has been a different dude since then. And that was a guy who easily could have been a cast off. And like, we just kind of forget about him. And he was huge for Spencer. Rattler. Like if they didn't have him out there, they would have been in even worse shape. And he made some big time plays for him. But yeah, too many holes for this South Carolina team. They got a lot of questions to answer moving forward. First edition, Will. We got a new segment, new segment, mm-hmm. a new Sunday pod segment that we're going to hopefully make, you know, we're going to, we're going to have some fun with this. We're going to have some fun with this. This is just ya or nah. It may or may not be really similar to true or false, but we're going to call it ya or nah because that's what we do here. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just going to ask, we're going to do five questions just like we do with interviews, a little rapid fire at the end, but this isn't going to be rapid fire. We're going to actually dig into these. I'm going to ask five questions and we'll, we'll kind of break this down. Your impression of Bama is changed after watching Jalen Milrow. Yeah or no? Nah. Agreed. Agreed. I think my impression didn't change because I, I mean, I had Alabama winning the West saying that even if I'm wrong about finding their guy at quarterback, they're going to find their guy and and they're going to be able to make it work. I was wrong about who their guy was at quarterback. Mm -hmm. I said all off season, it's Ty Simpson. Jalen Milrow gets first snap. Not only does he get first snap, he gets, I mean, he is QB one. There is no battle. This is over. He looked really, really good. He's the guy, unless Alabama's getting shut out at halftime of the national championship, in which case Mm -hmm. that would probably be the only time they would make an in-season change. But it wasn't even the ground ball snap turned into a touchdown that impressed me. That stuff is there. I thought it was great to hear Cole on the broadcast saying the last time I saw a guy make a play like that running into the end zone in Alabama, they made a Netflix doc about him referring to Johnny Manziel. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing about Milrow that impressed me that I still have questions about, but I like this in the limited sample size that we got. He looks so comfortable on third down. CD brought this up on SEC final. Alabama's average third down was third and five. We talked about Mm -hmm. with Florida, how you don't want Graham Mertz in those third and longs and felt like everything was a third and long. They stayed ahead of schedule really, really well. You still kind of wonder how those third and nine spots will look with Milrow if they have someone who can spy him. And if they have not, not everybody's going to have a Harold Perkins, obviously. Um, but if they have someone that can kind of limit that part of his game and he's not going to make the play like what we saw against Arkansas in that game in the fourth quarter last year, we stepped in for Bryce Young. But he had better pocket presence than what we've seen from him. And Alabama's receivers, there still might not be that alpha, that number one. I thought Isaiah Bond looked good. Jermaine Burton looks good. He's a complimentary type player. But they played well, and they gave him the help that he needed. But above all else, the offensive line is going to be the strength of this team. If you didn't believe that and you thought, oh, that's just you're holding on to yesteryear with Alabama, if you don't believe that, tell me this. If you're going to be joyless murder ball team, you need to be big, right? I'm Mm -hmm. not breaking any news by saying that. They talked about this on the broadcast. Their offensive line average is 339 pounds. They got some hosses up front. Mm -hmm. Like Cole said it was the first time he's ever seen an offensive line at any level have three guys who are 350 and above. (laughs) I mean, those are big, big boys. And that's that, that offensive line average is bigger than any NFL offensive line last year they're going to be in good shape in that area now like think about that that they are going to have a different identity and there will be moments in which we're kind of like hey you know the passing game really wasn't there they didn't really hit on some of the chunk plays but they're going to lean on you that's what they're going to do i question if they have a passing game that can win a national championship but this is not an eight and four nine and three team it's it's not, and I feel good saying that. Even those only Middle Tennessee, I I get it, but man, mm-hmm. like I can't wait for Texas next week. Bama has its guy. I was Texas dead wrong looks about horrible. Ty I know people probably. Are we 
Are we going there? Are we going? Are we saying that after Rice? Are we saying Listen, that after Rice? As much as I would have said, it would be like, I don't care about Tennessee State. Rice proved that sometimes that team can make you look bad. Malik Murphy, the backup, zero chance of seeing Arch Manning against Alabama. Let's yeah, let's eliminate that. Uh, if the Quinn Ewers injury happens again against Bama, we will not be seeing Arch Manning. Here's the thing about Ty Simpson, and I wonder about his future as he gets kind of pushed into QB3 territory. Mm-hmm. Here's the good news if you're Ty Simpson. The last time that I said someone in the state of Alabama would beat the starter and then he turned out to be QB3, Malik Willis happened. So there you go. Congratulations on your NFL future, Ty Simpson. You're in good shape. They're going to be fine. You're on the Alvin Kamara path. Well, did so. you have any other thoughts? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Just get buried on the depth chart and, and everything will work out for you just fine. Uh, you'll get that second contract. You'll be all good. Any other thoughts on on Milrow and, and watching him take over this offense? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just think it's Middle Tennessee State. And again, they beat Miami last year. Hats off to him. But I think this is just what Saban does so well is beat teams that are not on their level. Um, I think, like when I say nah, it's more of like, I still think they're going to be right there. Like at the end of the SC, like the SEC West, it's going to be a battle between them and LSU. But I don't think that Milrow blowing up Middle Tennessee State changes my opinion of their starting quarterback situation. I think I need to see him do it in these pressure situations where he struggled against, you know, <clears throat> Arkansas A&M, that level of talent. But yeah, I think, you know, their team definitely looked like they were angry, which is a scary thing as an LSU fan. Yeah, I don't. If you were, if you're in the eight and four, nine and three camp for Alabama, I don't think you watched that game and thought, "I feel better about that." Oh yeah, no, I was never there. That's yeah, hopium. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definite hopium. Different story, maybe with the start that Georgia got off to, and some would say, like, "All right, Bama got off to a little bit of a slow start." Maybe expectations are are fueling part of this, but yeah or nah, I'm selling my Carson Beck stock. I'm going with nah on that one. Did you have Carson Beckstock or did I own all of it? No, I don't think he's, I mean, I don't think he's good yet. Okay. All right. Um, first time starting since high school for Carson Beck. And he used the word anxiety. He had anxiety going into this, this first start. And I thought it showed it, it was a slow start for the Georgia offense. And for those who chose to just look at the final number and then circle back on Twitter and be like, Oh my God, how dare you ever criticize Georgia offense? They scored 48 points, ignoring the fact that one of those was, we're we're talking about a non-offensive touchdown here, but Georgia was sitting there with seven points, 25 minutes in against an FCS foe. And if you searched Mike Bobo on Twitter, you saw some people who may have been just a little bit frustrated, just a little Mm -hmm. bit frustrated because when you're the two time defending national champs and you just had your best offense in school history and don't tell me that offense wasn't as good as 2014, it absolutely was take away the non-offensive touchdowns and actually break down the numbers against top 25 competition. 2022 was definitely better, but I thought Georgia's offense just lacked rhythm early on. Ground game did not have a ton of juice outside of that nice chunk play from Kendall Milton. Maybe the play calling was a bit predictable against an FCS foe. This wasn't going to be the most diverse offensive game plan. You combine that with the fact that the running back field or the running back room is limited and also the aforementioned anxiety for Carson Beck. Yeah, you probably missed Lad McConkey, who wasn't out there. He's dealing with the back issue. I get all that stuff. I get all that. But whether Georgia fans want to admit this or not, there was a moment in that first half where they thought, I missed Todd Munkin. They they can they don't have to admit it. They don't have to admit it. They they might have just said it to their significant other in their in their living room. That's fine. They might have tweeted it. They might have had it in drafts. But at some point, they thought to themselves, "I miss Todd Munkin. This doesn't look like it. 
it it often did. And Munkin had his slow starts too. Okay, we talked a lot about Mizzou, Kentucky, even Kent State. That's the game that people kind of forget about with the slow start for them. Didn't really have those slow starts against FCS competition. Mm-hmm. I thought it felt a little bit different, and there was a very angsty Georgia crowd watching that that slow start. And Perry, who I always give shout outs to on this pod, he was texting me saying, I wish we played Oklahoma next week. I agree. I, I think I think it'd be really fun to see where this Georgia offense is if they could face a team like Oklahoma, even though it's a team that, look, even though they pitched a shutout against the fighting Butch Joneses of Arkansas State, I mm-hmm. would still love to see this Georgia offense against a Brent Venables defense. I came away thinking, I think Georgia fans are just going to kind of have to work through this. What you've done the last two years has set a standard that is so unbelievably high. And when you go 25 minutes into a game where you're struggling to score and struggling to, to, to string first downs together against an FCS foe, people are going to notice. But I still like what Carson Beck is going to be able to do. I think now that he's got a start under his belt, he's going to look a lot more calm. That little waggle move, foot in the dirt, at the goal line thing, they just totally copied from Stetson Bennett. You're like, all right, you can work with that. That's mm-hmm. that's positive. I'm a Bobo skeptic, and I still think the play calling is going to be a lot less predictable. I still think that the Georgia offense is going to put a ton of points on the board. But yeah, the Bobo frustration, it's just going to be there. It's, it's just mm-hmm. going to be there. And oh, by the way, Georgia's defense is still really freaking good, and it's probably not going to matter that much. Yeah, I mean, and I as I say this out loud, I, I guess I know the answer, but like, surely there are not people who think that Mike Bobo is better than Todd Munkin, right? Like, I think that you can say that Mike Bobo was fine, that Mike Bobo was a good coach, and that's fine. But Todd Munkin is like one of the best offensive coordinators we've ever seen in the SEC, simply because he took a team in 2021 Georgia that clearly does not repeat ever in the history of college football, especially in this conference. It was like, you know what? Even though you guys were this defensive team that lost all these defensive people, we're just going to kind of like make you into an offensive team behind Stetson Bennett. Like, I just feel like that's such an impressive accomplishment that you're going to miss that guy. Dude, there are times I miss Dave Aranda and that dude got blown up by Texas state last night. <laughs> like as a coordinator, like some, some guys are just good at that job. And so point being like, yeah, I think that it's fine to say that. And like, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's a couple of things. Yeah. I think I'm just not huge on Carson Beck. I just never really have been. I, I thought Vandergriff should have been the guy and <laughs> a bomb in this one. But yeah, I think, uh, I think overall, like, he, um, like, I, I think that overall this doesn't change anything. It's just like the Bama thing. It's like they were always going to beat UT Martin. They were always going to, you know, get, put it, run up a bunch of points. The defense looked fine. So unless you're like, it, it's two different things. It's like, as long as you blow out the bad level competition, uh, I don't really care. If you're in a, if you're in a rock fight with them, that's a different conversation. Like for, like, I don't ever think Tennessee was going to lose that game, but I saw some stuff that I was like, ah, maybe they can clean this up. And they did within the game, which is the best option. But yeah, I just think that, you know, it's, First year for an OC, first year for a QB. It's just kind of week one. But to your point, did I, was I blown away? No. I'm going to make a weird analogy here. Stick with me on this one, okay? I'm going to warn the people. I'm going to warn. I'm going to warn the people. This is this is Sunday morning brain after limited sleep. When I was in high school, I had really bad acne, really mm-hmm. really bad acne. I got on Accutane. It was something that made me really insecure as a person. And I knew that other people like would kind of notice it. And if I had like a bad pimple or something like that, and I could tell sometimes like, you know, I played sports and people would make fun of you and stuff. And, um, it was an issue that I knew that I had, but when other people pointed it out and made fun of it, I would get so defensive 
And it was mm-hmm. like, how dare you say that to me? Like, mm-hmm. I know this is a problem, but I don't like that you're the one that's pointing this out. That's how Georgia fans feel about this Bobo thing. It's mm-hmm. like when people on the outside start saying, hey, this this thing might have, like, we might have some questions about him. Mm-hmm. You are very, so many Georgia fans are just so defensive right now. And I get it because you're trying to protect this historic run that you're on and everybody gets defensive to a certain extent, but you're acknowledging that it can be a problem at times. And if you didn't mm-hmm. think that it was a problem and if you're just like, yeah, no, whatever, like everything's fine. The first 25, 30 minutes of this game, like we're, we're just good. No big deal. I think you're probably lying to yourself and you, you you're just searching for people that you can try and show, Hey, no, we're actually fine. This is going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay, but you get defensive. And that's natural. And I'm not saying that I blame you, but other people can see it. Other people can see it. And you're going to be on notice every single week, no matter who you're facing, even when you're on ESPN plus and it's against UT Martin, people are going to be looking at Georgia. That's how times have changed. You got some acne. It's okay. You're going to yeah. be able to work through it probably. Yeah. And I want to reiterate again, this is a seven to 48 win for Georgia. Like we're not saying like it's, 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 it is a yeah. week one. It is a blowout. They looked, they look good. Um, but it's just, you know, I remember, and I am not comparing these two situations. I'm not saying they're equal. I just know the feeling of the year of 2020 after 2019. It was obviously a weird year too, but Kojo bringing back Bo Pelini, bringing in Scott Linehan. I can't tell you how many times I sent that meme of Dave Chappelle with like the Heisman and like the national title and like the crown on, and it was just like all LSU stuff. And like every time anyone questioned Coach O at the time, I was just like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Coach O just went 15 and 0. And it's like, that's what you're, that's what you're battling is complacency. It's hiring all your buddies and thinking that you're above it. And I think that 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 mentality is what Georgia was so good at beating. So this is going to make for fascinating, fascinating television because the complacency should have already hit Georgia. You know, I'm saying it should have hit Georgia after 2021 or it should have hit Georgia in the Ohio State game or at some other point before now. So the thing is, obviously, Georgia will lose a game at some point at, in the future before the world ends, right? Obviously, Georgia will not be national champions at some point before the world ends, right? And so all of us now are just like, how is that going to happen? So that's the thing is it's like, it's not that we're plotting on their downfall or anything. It's just like, you know, this is really interesting. It's like that type of uh, decision-making kind of is the opposite of the the comments. I remember um, Kirby Smart getting on Keely Ringo after the SEC championship last year and being like, you can't do that. Even though we won by 20 and we dominated that game, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. So that's what we expect out of Kirby Smart. And that's why I hold him to such a high standard. Exactly. Georgia fans embrace the standard. That's, that's what mm-hmm. you're going to be held to moving forward. Another one. Yeah or nah, Connor Wigman is the real deal. And it's Wigman, not Wegman. We say Wegman because it's the grocery store. It's Wigman. We've got to say it's Wigman. He spells his first name wrong, but his last name, that's how we got to pronounce it. Okay. I'm going with Yah on this one. Yeah. Um, it looks really, really good with Robert Patrick Petrino at the controls of this offense. Again, it's against New Mexico. Take it for what it is. But if you were hoping to see a variety of formations, tempo, RPOs, explosive plays a little bit even they even went under center and had that had play action like a traditional play action on the the touchdown over the middle to Evan Stewart where you're just like they can do a lot of different things Connor Wigman makes adjustments really well that's what I like about him I like Mm -hmm. that he takes hits he hangs in there I like that he's willing to target a variety of guys I like that if you turn your back on him and you don't have a spy on him in single coverage, he can easily hit you for 15. I saw the tweet from Brent Swernman where he's like, Connor Wigman says to uh, Bobby Petrino, he's like, when I run, do I remind you of Lamar? 
<laughs> Petrino is just like, uh, no, he just like shakes his head. That's incredible. Great self-awareness to think that you, you're like uh, Lamar in the open field. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're an A&M fan, that was everything that you could have hoped for from this new offense. Will, we got we got a Petrino blow up. We did. We, very brief. Oh, I missed this. It. Yeah. We, I so I like I had like three games going on and this was game number four at certain times. So I'm willing to admit there were parts of this game that I missed. But what I did see live happen, they had a substitution issue or something like that. And mm-hmm. they go to the shot of Petrino in the booth and he like slams. It was a highlighter or a pen. And he like Let's puts his go. head back and then he leans forward. And he like slams it down. It was it was great. That's the type of stuff that I want to see all the time in good and bad. They were up 35 to seven at that at that point. Didn't matter. Game was not I even love close. Football coaches. We should study their brains. Oh. Yeah, though. I, I, we, we were hoping for one of those this year, and it took us zero weeks. It took us the first opportunity. Yes, it was. It was great. Everything we could have hoped for. Weird to not see Jimbo Fisher on the sideline, fumbling around with a bunch of play sheets and stuff like that, and being all distressed constantly. But I, and I know, like Connor Wigman's going to face better competition. But think about this, because I was. Going back to his starts last year, and I, I knew that I, I liked what I'd what I'd seen from him in flashes. In his five starts in his career, which that's almost half a season, he's getting there. And these are all against FBS competition, three of which were against SEC West foes. But in these five starts, 13-0 TD Dianti, 7.4 yards per attempt. You'd like to be able to get that up. I think he will with more explosive plays like he did in this offense. Average over 10 yards per attempt in this one. And he averages 208 passing yards. For a guy as young as he is, like mm-hmm. there's a lot to like, I think. There's a reason why, why AM fans are so high on him. The pieces are in place around him now. I think to make him an all SEC guy, I think he has that upside. If you told me that Connor Wigman's going to be the best quarterback Jimbo Fisher has had since Jameis Winston, I'd say, yeah, that means he's better than Kellen Mond. Do I think mm-hmm. he's going to be better than Kellen Mond in his career? Yes, I absolutely do. I'll take the over on that. Um, the only thing that I, that was missing in this game, we just need better camera work on Petrino. We need a better angle. They got to figure that out at Kyle Field. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't see enough of his face. He's not leaning far enough forward. Maybe the in booth, like GoPro that they get set up with, mm-hmm. you know, that, that every once in a while they have. I don't know if AM has kind of nixed that, but that was my only complaint. Love me some Connor Wigman. Very, very much buying more of that stock right now. We are just front and center heading the Sickos committee right now because I'm like trying to find grainy footage of Bobby Petrino blowing up in a blowout win against like New Mexico State. I'm just like, I can't find it because it was just you that had the tap. We should have gotten the Connor vertical cell phone video of that. But yeah, no, I I, I wish I could. Yeah, it, it's going to be there in the SEC game. So we're, we're, this is why you listen to this podcast for this in-depth reporting by Connor because if it's going to happen in week one, it'll happen in, in whatever loss they happen to suffer this year. So be looking for it. The keys of the game are there. Um, yeah, no, I'm yes. I'm very I'm pleasantly surprised. As much as I again roast AM, I do think that they are can't believe it would be nice to them. I, I I do believe that they have always been kind of a sleeping giant because of their amount of resources and, and um you know the recruiting and we've seen Jimbo Fisher be a good coach at a high level. It's like these words are just coming out of my mouth angrily. But again, New Mexico, I'm not gonna say like this is some great world beater team. But the thing is they were struggling with these teams last year. It's all relative. They were struggling with every team yep. on the schedule last year. From week one to the end of the season, they struggled with every team except the LSU Tigers. So I think that pretty much every team was an opportunity to show improvement. And this one, they very clearly showed improvement. And again, it's like, I want to be fair. 
Georgia, Alabama, I've judged you up here. A&M doing this, radically different. Because last year, this would have been a dogfight with New Mexico. And I don't think New Mexico is any good. Neither were any of the teams. They had fights with. <laughs> and look, we're going to find out a whole lot more when they go to Miami. Okay, that's the, mm-hmm. Everybody knows that. The real Miami is... Miami won in the battle for Miami. Um, the name Miami. We've Washington decided Washington. Carolina and we've decided Miami in one fell weekend. <laughs> yes. Uh, maybe we should have USC, the battle for USC, even though nobody outside of South Carolina actually refers to South Carolina as USC. Um, that is just Southern Cal. But maybe we should have just battles like that throughout non-conference play. That would be great to see. Uh, but we're going to find out a whole lot more about this AM offense. But for the exact point that you mentioned, yes, we're judging based on the standard that's been the last two years and how much they have struggled in games like this, especially last year. Okay, ya or nah, Kentucky successfully and knowingly pulled off a wild backdoor cover. Yeah. 100. Did you see this? Did you see this? Will? Mm. Mm. Okay. This sequence was exactly why I think coaches know the spread. Okay. They, they do whether they admit it or not. They know the spread. Kentucky is on the ball state 30 yard line up 37 to 14 with 16 seconds left. The spread is 25 and a half. So you're up 23, right? You're not going to line up to kick a field goal on second and 12. That's a little bit too suspicious probably, but mm-hmm. you're, you're up there in a spot where everybody, like if, if you don't know the spread, you're, you're kneeling out the clock. That That's all you're doing. But instead right. Kentucky's got starters out there, Will, and they're not kneeling. They're running an actual play. Friend of the program, Ray Davis. He scampered for a 30-yard touchdown run with six seconds left to cover the spread. Sports betting just went live in Kentucky last month. The oh, crowd okay. shots after this, and I'm so upset. Yes, trust me. Like there, there are some ulterior motives here. They showed the crowd afterwards, like at, right after this happened, and they didn't put two and two together on the broadcast. Kentucky fans were freaking out. Because Mm -hmm. I bet you so many fans at Kroger Field had bet on that game. They're like, season opening game. I can finally bet in my home state. I'm going to go to a football game. I'm going to lay the points. And I'm going to do whatever. And then that touchdown happened. That was the only way. The only way Kentucky was going to cover the spread in that spot. Unreal cover. The fact that it happened with Kentucky's first teamers out there was amazing. I thought they had a 0% chance of covering after what was a pretty slow offensive day. For all the new quarterbacks, uh, new systems, I I thought that Devin Leary was at the bottom of the barrel with some of the throws that he was struggling to make where he just wasn't really on the same page. And the number kind of skews it because the Barry and Brown kick return touchdown, a scoop Mm -hmm. and score touchdown. They had another scoop and score that should have happened that was waved off. But better days, I think, are ahead for that Kentucky offense. Incredible backdoor cover, though. Just unbelievable that they pulled that off with six seconds left with the starters still out there in a 23-point game. Stoops will deny that till the end of time, but there's no way he didn't know what he was doing. See, this is a couple of things. Again, this is exactly why you listen to the STS podcast because of this little in-depth detail and reporting by Connor. And also, you know, this is why Mark Stoops is going to have that job as long as he wants it because that is the most Ferda yep. for the boys coach of all time. He is thinking to himself, these 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 people in the stands, you know, they came to see a blowout. We haven't totally given them that. We played well. But you know what? Let's cash all these bets. Let's cash all these bets. Come on. Let's get all the people on our side. And maybe if you struggle in the middle of the year, you know, he can say, you know, your pocketbooks are a little bit fatter thanks to me. He won't say it, but it'll be unspoken. They'll know it. So that's why we love Mark Stoops. He's just like us for real. 
there's both ends of the spectrum, right? There's the, I'm going to kick a field goal. There's, the, uh, who was it? Um, I think it was, it was Eastern Michigan against Michigan, the sad field goal to avoid mm-hmm, the shutout. Mm-hmm. There, there's that side of it on the losing side. And then there's what we're going to do on the winning side. It's not good enough to just win if Mark Stoops is going to have to talk to boosters at some event this week. And they're going to be like, really would have been nice if you could have covered the spread. Yeah, mm-hmm. you won. You didn't win by enough. When you go back and they they know that you had their back in that spot, you're exactly right. That's why he's going to have that job forever. That's how you continue to make more friends in that spot. It was for those who know, like, and we're watching that with maybe a little bit of action on that game. That was uh, that was a very monumental swing at the very end. And as okay. any homer knows, I Let's remember with- saying this. I remember saying this several times about I think 2018 Florida LSU it was trashed versus or 2019 sorry LSU Florida that was in Tiger Stadium. It's like the best the best rebuttal for your team struggling and what you didn't really expect is well we covered. Once you say well we covered, it's over. It's like well we beat the experts. Yeah, what is it? Uh, good teams win, great teams cover. Just mm-hmm. saying, throwing it out there. Kentucky wouldn't say is a great team just yet. A lot of issues to work through, but definitely a nice little cover for them. Last one, Deion Sanders should have everyone on notice. Yeah or nah, this is an obvious yeah after what he did yeah. in the season opener. The story of the weekend, no doubt about it. Just an unreal scene to watch Colorado pull that upset off against the defending national runner-up TCU squad who we said they were being disrespected. As it turned out, Colorado was the one who was disrespected. We heard Deion I've been too nice all offseason. I really have. I was like, these people, you know, I'm going to be nice to them. No, I should have been meaner to everyone, Connor. That's my lesson of the day. Was Colorado just really, really good or was TCU just really, really bad? That's going to be like the the, mm-hmm. the the thing that people try and decipher and break down. And it's week one. Like to, to think that we know the definitive answer to that, we absolutely don't. But like seeing what Colorado did, man, it was it was fun. Everybody was turning on that game. Like seeing mm-hmm. Deion's son, who he said he's – yeah, he's going to be my starting quarterback, Shadir Sanders, uh, come in just – Boom. Over 500, 510 yards right passing Hunter. yards, 510 I mean, passing yards. I can't even count that high. Like they were, they were just dicing up that TCU defense. It was bad. Like Travis Hunter playing 119 snaps is bonkers Two mm-hmm. like two way stud. Shout out to urban Meyer for saying beforehand on big noon kickoff that Travis Hunter was Colorado's secret weapon. Um, I don't, I don't know how to say this to urban, but he may or may not have missed the part where Travis Hunter was the number one overall recruit in the 2022 class. He was the number one player in the transfer portal. The guy is literally never leaving the field, but I guess he is a secret weapon. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Everyone's sure. a little Thanks bit distracted during that one. Y'all can look up his name and figure that one out. Uh, was that dur- – how close was that to the uh, – how do I even call that? Uh, the You keep moving. The That's incident funny. with the woman. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you said what? Exactly. I was saying like, how, what, what exactly, how close was Travis Hunter's commitment to urban's um, not so flattering cell phone video uh, in Ohio that, that everybody saw. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was that close, but neither here nor there. It was just wild. It was wild to see Dion embracing this moment. And I, I don't often say this, but I think we're going to get really used to Dion just trying to dunk on every reporter afterwards. It felt like everyone in that room was basically Tim McCarver, the late Tim McCarver, mm-hmm. might I add. And it was, uh, it, it was Dion saying to everybody, if you didn't believe before, you had better believe now. 
And I think the question that we should be asking is, all right, so what is, what is Colorado? Like, are they a PAC 12 contender? I'm probably not willing to say that. I think the defense has a ways to go. They're probably going to struggle with a lot of these quarterbacks that are so mm-hmm. good in the Pac-12, or at least we expect to be really good. But the whole like one bowl game in 15 years, Colorado, that image, it, it is gone. Like it is mm-hmm. out the window. I was thinking about this as they close this out. During that lone bowl season, 2016, wherein friend of the show, Mike McIntyre, he was national coach of the year. Did any win that season receive even half as much attention as what Dion got in his debut in game Mm-mm. one. No, like <laughs> that was the highest ranked team that Colorado beat since 2009. And that was also number 17 team in the country, but it was home against Kansas. So you would have to go back to 2007 probably to find a better win. And that was when they beat number three, Oklahoma. It was their highest ranked road victory since 2001. Will and Dion just did that in week one. Like if you hate Dion, I got news for you. Like this might not be the college football season for you. It just yeah. might not. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is the haze in the barn. So it's like they won one game last year. <laughs> they've already won one game this year. <laughs> so even if they Nashed lose it. out from here, they have a better win than they've had, like you said, since like the Bush administration. So there's really nothing you could say to him that he didn't improve the program to some degree. Cause like, that was the thing I was talking about that. Like yesterday, it's like, it's two different conversations. It's like, do you think Dion is a good coach? Do you think he deserves a job? Whatever. That conversation doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the conversation is, should they have hired him? And the answer is pretty clearly yes, because at the end of the day, you can't get worse than where they were. So this is exactly a perfect opportunity to try something new. And, you know, Colorado, other than having really sick uniforms and, you know, really sick, like I love playing with them in NCAA, you know, because they have a cool vibe to them. Other than that, there's really nothing to remember them for in like my or our lifetimes. I don't think, I don't like we're only a couple of years apart. So we don't remember like the late nineties Colorado teams that were great, but I just don't remember them being anything, but kind of a punchline in that one team with McIntyre, like he talked about, but yeah, I mean, this is a chance to do something really special and like, Hey, if it, if it goes great or terrible, it's entertaining. It's getting eyeballs and that's what you want as a, we're learning everyone's a TV property now, not just a football team. So it's like, yeah, I think that Dion's debut was everything everyone that was pro Dion, pro the hire like me could have hoped for. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, we need some fun in college football. I don't want to feel like I'm, I don't want to feel like this is all numbers. That's why I don't like the NFL as much because it feels like every game is just like this statistical grid. Whereas with like college, it's like, you need some wild stuff to happen. You need some weird offenses. You need a coach with a cowboy hat, giving out like one liners. Like that's what it's about. So I think Dion's great for college football. I think two, yeah, two things can be true at the same time. You can admit that Dion isn't, isn't necessarily a guy who's going to say everything that you agree with at all times and also understand that maybe what he's doing, there is a method to his madness and understanding that the roster turnover is something that we talked about over the summer had to happen in a place like Colorado. It doesn't mean it should happen like that everywhere. It doesn't mean that everybody can be as brash as he is because of the in-state high school recruiting stuff that you have to work through the boosters getting on board, like all those different things. It's a little bit more complicated in other places than Colorado, but like, if you're sitting here still saying this won't work, this will fail. I get it. It's only one week, but when you already do something like that and you see the talent that's on display, I don't know. I don't know how you're still holding on to that. That might not be the hill that you want to die on this year. It mm-hmm. was a wild, wild game. Colorado, even if they only end up being seven and five this year, which maybe they will be, I'm not sitting here looking at the schedule saying, Oh yeah, I'm, I think they're going to beat USC. Now game against Nebraska gets a little bit more interesting. You can say that. 
think Husker fans who saw that week one game against Minnesota were thinking, ah, you know, we'll just bounce back against Colorado. Don't know that they have that same exact mm. thought, but <laughs> yeah, Colorado was Colorado's like the story of the weekend and probably going to be one of the stories of the season. So sorry, like if you're anti Dion, get used to hearing about Colorado and what they're doing because it is entertaining as all hell. It really is because of how different it is and because he's going to continue to say things that are going to move the needle. That's just, that's reality. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we are, like I said, recording this before LSU. So we're going to offer some thoughts up on LSU, Florida state, when we open the preview pod that comes out on Thursday, remember that's the schedule now moving forward. We have our Sunday pods that we record that you can expect to drop like early Sunday afternoon is when we usually push for, for those to come out. And then early, early, early Thursday morning, hopefully by the time that you're driving to work or getting ready for work or something like that, you will have that pod ready to go. So that's going to be the plan. We're on YouTube now, Saturday down South on YouTube. You should subscribe to mm -hmm. it. All of our episodes are on YouTube Shout out to um, shout out to Dan for our producer, Dan Waller, who's making that happen and is doing a lot of work behind the scenes to be able to get that stuff up on YouTube. Um, and we're trying out a couple of new things. So, yeah, it's great. Week one in the books. It was a lot of fun. So glad football's back. Well, so freaking glad that football's back. Can't wait to see you in a few hours for this game mm -hmm. on Sunday night. It was hopefully hopefully it's going to be the game of the weekend by the time people are listening to this. Who knows? Maybe it'll already have been the game of the weekend. Yeah, right. that Colorado game is going to be hard to beat. But, you know, I'm hoping for a very sleepy 14-point win by LSU. But, yeah, I mean, I think this is perfect to have, you know, either your team play early, like Thursday, or Sunday, where you can just sit back and bask in the Saturday that was. I mean, that was just so perfect. And, uh, yeah, I mean, cheers the last time you will see me sober today. <laughs> <laughs> An honest man. That's you, are, Will. Love it. Love it. If you haven't, leave us a five-star review, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on X, still not used to saying that, at the SDS pod, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Subscribe on YouTube, Saturday Down South on YouTube. Join the Facebook group, here, name Red on Air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.